Hello and welcome to the Rhythm Changes Podcast. I'm your host, Will Chernoff. And this episode, I want to give a shout out, not an official sponsorship, to a book that's coming out about a notable personality in the history of our scene. That's Fraser McPherson, saxophonist. The book is written by the late Guy McPherson, who we miss. It is called Fraz. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm already here. There's a book launch happening featuring the Corey Weeds Quartet playing some music. It's at the Odd Fellows Hall in Vancouver on April 16th. And you can get tickets to this event where you can get the book through the link in the description here. Hope to see you out at this book launch. Let's get into it. All right, we're into the Rhythm Changes podcast for 2024. I've been recording some episodes and this is one of them that now we're going to get rolling with here this year. I'm very excited to share them with you. This is a special one. A lot of my podcasts are either first meetings or their first real conversations with people. But the magic of it, I feel, is that despite that, the conversations can be so honest and personal. And our guest, she really brought that energy today. Very happy to share this one with you. Let's go. Our guest today is a very multidisciplinary artist. There's dance, there's theater, there's production, there's being on the leadership team of the Sister Jazz Orchestra of a concert coming up on March 8th that we can talk about. She has released multiple albums that I want to learn more about and they cover all the different things that you would find in our jazz scene somehow in the work of one vocalist here. So please welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Jessica Heaven. Thank you so much for having me. Will, you are so lovely. <laughs> oh, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm I'm just like really excited to be here. I'm like very honored to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Little jazzer, I guess, after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, I think you might be the first guest who does jujitsu. Is this something that you do? It is. And I am obsessed about it. I am obsessed. I train 13 to 15 hours a week right now. Wow. For Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Gi. So Gi is like, if you've seen karate, you know, that white outfit that they wear, you can consider that that's kind of like a Gi. Now, of course, for different martial arts, the the uniform's a little bit different, but it, it looks like that. And so there's Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Gi, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu No Gi. So that's where you're kind of wearing like, regular clothing and there's more grappling involved with it and then there's muay thai and then there's kickboxing and then there's some mma um so i've been really into it (laughs) so you like to cross disciplines not only in your music but also in your martial arts (laughs) yes yeah 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 exactly and it's fun too because sometimes you kind of hit a plateau or there's like a a wall with one thing right like in jiu-jitsu and then you're like oh actually i really like like kicking i really like teeps i really like muay thai and you want to do that more and then it kind of like comes full circle so it's it's interesting that way because it's the same with arts too when i get frustrated or something with a particular style or genre like you know sometimes acting can be quite frustrating because you know it's like you can be great but you're just you just don't get picked and that's just common right like there's just the level of rejection in, in artistry is so high right because there's so many of us and so when you're like, okay, acting is just like not happening for me. And then you can turn and work on something else. And that can be quite therapeutic when there's something that's just kind of out of your control. I'll try to calm my voice a little slow. No, I welcome it. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun for me because I, I recorded an episode yesterday and I would say that that one was very chill and very, it had a different kind of pace to it. So I enjoy the, the full variety of, of the pacings that you get into in the conversations. I just kind of, I like to kind of mirror what I pick up, you know? 
<laughs> the personalities are there yeah 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 exactly um but yeah so that yeah, that's true fighting yeah you were a triple threat kid you could say right from the beginning right like you were acting and singing and dancing all the way through right i've been yeah so i started dancing when i was two um and then i started acting in grade four and then i, I started singing taking uh like private lessons with the one and the only Kelly uh, Crook, or now known as Kelly Nobles, who of course is the wife of Jordan Nobles, who is uh, a Juno award-winning composer. Uh-huh. Um, and she is just like phenomenal. Adore her to bits. Her family is just like, has a heart of gold. Like, I would not have the voice I have today without her. Like, I have so much respect for her. Shout out to Kelly if you're hearing this. I love you. <laughs> uh, we're still good friends, and I still go to her for lessons. Like she is, she is like my go-to. Yeah. So again, what period of time was that for you in childhood? When did that start? So for singing, I started going for private lessons. I would say in like grade seven, grade eight, because I really had a willow of the wisp voice. Now my 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 mom says and it's really funny because your mom and, and my mom know each other they're both artists um oh, but right. yes 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 but um <laughs> I, and she's like oh do you know do you know my mom came back from a lunch date with the, your mom and she's like do you know a a, a gentleman named will and he's like blonde <laughs> he's got glasses and plays bass i'm like yeah will turn i'm like yeah but that's 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 my friend's son <laughs> oh i forgot about that i did know this thank you for for reminding me about that um but yeah so coming back to um so i started private singing there and and my mom says that I had a natural ear for it. I don't know if that's biased or not because um, I don't really remember that. I remember <laughs> really having a will of the wisp voice, like a <sighs> kind of sound. Kind of airy. Yeah, and um, not having a lot of presence. And um, my sister, Marissa, I think she was really responsible for getting me into like choirs and stuff. Because I wasn't really much of a of an instrumentalist per se. I played clarinet in grade six and seven and like bless mr piggott who was my band teacher but god i was awful like <laughs> i was really bad and my mom had private lessons for me for clarinet and things as well and i love the clarinet as an instrument but i could not play that thing to sound beautiful i could like it just <laughs> it just would not happen however i had much more success with bassoon Mm -hmm. And so in high school, I got made that switch because we needed a bassoon for a part. And I was like, please let me try something else. And I loved it. But now I like I love clarinet. Like, do not get me wrong. But I just it just I, I, I can't do single read. I just don't sound good. I don't know what it is. So anywho, backtrack back to my sister was like, well, why don't you try choir? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was in choir and um, I was like, oh, like I need some help, like learning parts and stuff. And so you know, Kelly, I got lessons uh, with Kelly and how lucky was I? Because uh, she's quite busy. Like, she's just like everybody on the North Shore who's a vocalist works with her, basically. Um, and uh, then that started the journey of like being more of a vocalist. So you went to school in North Van? Mm hmm. Seacove. Cool. Dorothy Linus and then Seacove. Shout out <laughs> to Seacove. Gotcha. One of my longest time musical collaborators went to Seacove as well, Thad Bailey Mai. Isn't that just freaking wonderful? <laughs> I love that. I've always loved that. He's always been like, he's always been, okay, like, you know what? Some people are just artists and you can mm. just so clearly see their artistry. Totally. Even from a very young age, Thad was just like, there's just something about him. 
we were very lucky because we got to do a composition class and there was only like five of us in the class you know um and he was one of them and his composition by far was one of the most sophisticated mm-hmm. um and so you're just like you kind of know you're like oh man this this guy is gonna go and do something you're like you just <laughs> know it and lo and behold you know here you know yeah. but no love love him so much yeah and more seacove uh indirectly you not only mentioned the connection between our moms but uh you especially in recent years you've played a lot with my best friend in the scene madeline elkins on guitar and chad galfin were partner went to seacove as well yes like okay <laughs> first of all like shout out to maddie maddie's a queen maddie you know i think you're a queen but like she is a queen and holy cow her guitar chops are heavy and they're heavy across genre too uh-huh. like yeah she plays jazz with the best of them but have you heard her folk sets you know like oof like she's just heavy with it and she's just so like chill and she's like yeah okay yeah let's let's try it out and then she just kills it the first time and you're like oh that's you trying it out good to know good to know <laughs> <laughs> and her and chad so me and and maddie and chad we got this uh gig at the vancouver christmas market uh-huh just like you know singing the cute little songs doing the vibe being the thing looking cute being cute and uh it was a great fun a lot of fun they're just they're super wonderful they work really well together they sound great together um and then they're just really funny like when you yeah. get two of them <laughs> together their their humor is great so lovely to work with with them too no complaints no complaints love those guys <laughs> would love to do more with them um but yeah so yeah so i do i do know maddie yeah i want to talk a little bit about your different educational stops and there's three chapters i want to start with <laughs> chapter one because that's certainly before i would have first encountered you mm-hmm. which is Cafu jazz of mm-hmm. course uh, the later ones being going to SFU for communications and anthropology and then going to do your MA at Royal Roads University, which is the most recent thing yeah. that you completed. So I want to hear a little bit about all those, but I want to start with Cap Jazz. Before you even got there, talk about how did you end up there? What was that like going there for chapter one of your education journey after high school in North Van? <laughs> well, that's a great question. So first of all, I just want to say sometimes I'm a bit spacey would be a good uh, word i think (laughs) and so uh, in high school i was i mean as a child my mom said that she would never know how i would get from point a to point b (laughs) so you know i'd go to like lessons and she's like oh how are the lessons I'm like i don't know and then she would see me on stage and she's like how did this happen how did you get from here because the performance was good um and like a great question like Okay, a great example is in grade four, I auditioned to be Clara in the school's play, The Nutcracker, and I got the role. And so my mom, you know, would run lines with me, and I would be, like, kind of forgetting them or whatever, and then I wouldn't be giving them much emotion, I'd just be, like, going through the lines. And she's like, okay, like, okay, cool. And then when she went to see me in the theater, I had, like, a British accent. (laughs) (laughs) I had, like, this little British accent, and I had all these emotions and things, and, like, I was a performer. And my mom had never, she's like, she was, she was shocked, because she was just like, I've never, she had never seen it in rehearsal. And, uh, you know, she had people coming up and like, you should get her an agent. You know, she's good. You should get her an agent. And she's like, okay yeah yeah okay you know um and so 
I've always kind of been that way where it's like I didn't seem to study and I'd always do well on tests. Kind of an intuitive, like, there's an intuition to there, the learning, yeah. There is an intuitive learner, I guess you could say. Um, and so in high school, that was kind of the same thing. But as we got to the end of high school, I was pretty busy in high school. I didn't really have much of a social life. I would like wake up, you know, 6 a.m. I would be in choir or band of jazz or concert, whatever it was, in the mornings from like 7.30 or 8 to when school would start and then it would be all of the things all the academic things lunchtime would be a choir i'd either be taing or i would be singing my own choir or it would be rehearsing for drama or it would be um uh what's the other thing uh, like student council green council um grad council whatever the councils were i was probably in those as well and then from there i would go and i would like do my afternoon classes and then i would go and i would rehearse for the play or like so it was a lot and after that then i would go to dance so mm-hmm. oftentimes and particularly in the senior years it got really hard because i was robbing peter to pay paul for a lot of my things so i'd have to leave choir early to get to dance on time i'd have to leave dance to get to whatever okay. so i didn't really have much of a social life my social life was directly associated with like all the extracurriculars um and so i think by the time it got to grade 12 i was like oh yeah right after i graduate what the heck do I want to do? Uh-huh. And so part of that was also like, what can we afford to do as well? You know, um, because education is expensive. Um, and so I applied for scholarships. And so one of the final, one of like the main things about the CAP scholarship was that it was a full ride mm-hmm. for that diploma. I think that was like a, a big, a big factor was the fact that, first of all, I got in, which is like, a surprise, you know, I did not have, I did not have the theory to get in. I had to take a summer school course because I really struggled in that, on that exam. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but that, that, that was a full ride scholarship with that one. So we went with that one and it was also really close and, uh, I was good at jazz. So it made sense to, to kind of pursue that also because I was really tired of academia at that point. I'm tired of math and I'm tired of science. I'm tired of writing. Not that they're not interesting subjects, but you're just kind of like, I'm pooped. I'm tired. I'm Mm -hmm. done. Let me, let me do this. And for me, what I loved about music and dance and drama and the arts is, is the emotion. I mean, one of the things that's so, that's so amazing about jazz is I remember one of the first times, like one of the first times I heard Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday was in grade I want to say it was grade six and it knocked my socks off. I was like, oh, oh, you can do really powerful stuff with this. Oh, this is really interesting. You can, you can really say something with it. And it really hit me. First of all, because the song is so, if it's, it's powerful, but it's extremely visual, but it's not gory. It, it really has this, it walks this really beautiful line of like, you really understand and yet it, it's very somehow gentle in its, in its, in, in the brutality of, of the visual, which it is. And um, from there, jazz was interesting and, and I'd grown up on jazz. Like, you know, I listened to like Bert Cranford at my grandparents' house every dinner that we were there, right? 
And then you listen to, you know, like, like Michael Buble in like 20, you know, 2006 or 2007 was like, everyone's listening to Michael Buble. And everyone's listening to Diana Krall. And um, these kinds of things. But then you get, you start to go deeper. And so Billie Holiday was that moment where you're like, oh, there's more to this. Okay, I'm in. This is interesting. And throughout high school, you know, we'd be listening to, you know, we, we would sing certain songs and jazz and, you know, we would go on retreats or we'd go to festivals and people would talk about the meanings of these songs or whatever and, and what it really meant for artists and we'd talk about composers and things like this as well. And I think what I really fell in love with with jazz was jazz is one of those genres that is like all encompassing. It it really has a divinity in it because it's extremely political. And it's like it's like immensely personal. And it can be humorous and it can be funny, but it can also be quite satirical or cutting. Um and it can also just break your heart. And it also can be super light potted palm music. It has this breadth. And so I think that there was an interest about the people within it. And that was one thing that my friend always said too, who was an instrumentalist to me. He's like, you know, he's like, you know, you, you, I think you like jazz, but I think you really like the, the whole people thing about it more than you even like the music. And I'm not sure if that's true. I think that it's interrelated, but it was an interesting observation to make. So we went, we went to jazz school <laughs> and we struggled a fam. Oh, we did. No theory. That is, that is a very, um intense inclination towards success if you're wanting to be successful in your classes and you have no theory <laughs> you got to learn quick uh, so yeah. yeah you know what i hear often about those who took the summer theory on the way into the program is that they made their first great friends there and that it set them up for when they showed up there. But not everybody would. Did you experience that? It's just something common that I've heard from, I from think, people. I think that was when when you're kind of like when you're in that class, you're kind of like, oh, I'm the underdog a little bit. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm not the best. I'm kind of on the cusp here. They I'm on the coattails. They let me in by, you know, like you don't really feel. I mean, for me personally, I was like, oh, like I got in, but <laughs> by the hair of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> and so for me it was i think that there's some camaraderie that comes from being like hey oh you're here too cool oh you failed as well nice <laughs> okay <laughs> um there's like a really interesting humanity that kind of meets you in those spaces um that i think then carries you because then some of those people went on to be some of the top of the class in in the in the next in the few years to come and so it, it's cool to see that. Um, I wouldn't say that I was the top of the class, but I, some of us who were in that class became top of class and I was proud of them for it. Uh -huh. For me, I think I always a little bit struggled. But what's interesting though is when I look back, I'm like, I am very proud about how much I learned, how fast I learned because that is, was a lot. So mm -hmm. yeah, no, I would, I would say that that's true. Like one person that I think was in the class with me was Chris Fraser uh-huh christmas tree fraser you know um <laughs> and i always like i can't get enough of his humor he is the funniest dude to me like i can't like he can't his humor just falls out of his mouth like he can't not be funny 
And um, he's also like an extremely accomplished guitar player with beautiful, complex voicings. But uh, <laughs> love <laughs> he's that. He's playing dude. tonight, uh, February twenty yes. fourth. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> go see him. Say hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I didn't finish that program. I went for only a brief time. How long were you there? I did a diploma, so I actually nice. ended up going for. I I did I did the diploma. And then I was in my third year and I was kind of at like a, I was kind of in the stuck position because I was not wanting to be a teacher. Not that that's not an amazing thing to be um, because my sister is a band teacher, right? Marissa Heaven wins her band and strings and she's nice. grown that program and it's a, an amazing program and she is amazing at what she does. But I also see how much work she puts in and it's a lot. It's a lot of work, you know? And so I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, uh, should i finish this and and i had the full ride so i was like okay um but i was kind of dealing with some things like by third year there's a lot of like wear and tear that i would say that the program kind of puts you through um in different ways like there's definitely so one thing that really kind of ended it for me was i was having um sort of weird pain and nerve issues in and around my neck when i was singing and by the time I actually got it checked out, it turned out that I had been holding stress in my right shoulder to such an extent that I was pulling my larynx out of its original position, and I needed to stop now or face permanent damage. Oh. So I took a medical withdrawal in the spring of my third year, and it was, it was the first time in my life where I kind of feel like I had failed. It was very intense. And there were some other things that were influencing that. Like, there's a lot of stress sometimes being one of the few women in a program that is filled with um, dudes who are being taught by dudes who don't necessarily understand what it means to be a girl in a program that's only taught by dudes and is surrounded by dudes. Uh-huh. That's a really interesting place to be. Um, and it was one of the things, like, I, I definitely faced, like, yeah, like, there's always, like, covert or casual sexism. That's everywhere you're always navigating that. Um, but there was a, there was just like an instant where there was a particular person in a place of power who was kind of being predatory towards me. And it was very uncomfortable and it was very hard to continue to sort of like navigate around it. And so I think that was also part of a contributing factor towards the stress that I was feeling. Um, and so it got to a point where, you know, when I, when I got that diagnosis with the larynx, I was like, okay, like I'm out, I got to leave. And it it felt very defeating and it did feel like I had failed because I'm like, oh, this is a program I'm working towards. And I, a lot of, I gave myself a very hard time. And for a while after I left CAP, I didn't listen to music. I didn't listen to the radio. I didn't listen to music. I was done and I wasn't going to sing again. And, um, and I didn't for four years, I just didn't do anything. And then I was like, okay, well, it's time to move on with my life. So, you know, after I left, um, I think it was that fall or maybe a year after I left, I started at SFU and I started doing my, I pursued my love of like people and culture and study. And that's why anthropology and communications kind of became that thing. It was a joint major. Um, 
And so basically I'm studying the way that culture is formed and how people form culture, but also how communication systems are a factor within that formation of culture. And so I, I, yeah, I wasn't doing anything. Lo and behold, someone found me in the bookstore of the SFU campus in Burnaby and, and her, and that was Gavia, Gavia Lertzman Lepofsky, um, who is like an academic superstar okay so let me talk to you about gabby gabby is wonderful gabby comes from parents who are both academic superstars they're both professors at sfu i think they retire now but like both are like i think her mom was an ethnobotanist and i think that her dad was a biologist smart 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 family um also just like hearts of gold wonderful people and she plays the fiddle and her dad plays fiddle. It's like the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. Anyways, so she's like, hey, I remember you from Seacove because she went to Seacove. And she's like, you, you sang. And I was like, yeah, no, not really. It's like, well, we're having auditions for this band Um, if you want to come out. And I went home and I told my mom. And she's like, and my parents, my family had been trying to get me to sing again for years. And they had bought me things like gift certificates to recording studios. And I was like, I don't want, like, I just, it just didn't materialize. I was just like, so broken up about it. I was like, I'm not meant to be this. This is not what I'm meant to do. And um, so they're like, go and try, please. This is the first time you've even thought about it. Go. And so I went and I auditioned and I was super nervous and sweaty. And then I (laughs) was at her house and then i left and then i got it and so it was this little folk trio i've never really sung folk i never really sung rock i never really sung pop um but here we are two vocalists um and uh you know we did uh we did some folk stuff we did gigs we did some things and it was like really awesome and then it kind of came point where the guy uh in that trio was like okay i want i'm kind of like he was kind of like I've done my thing. I don't want to really do this really too much anymore. I want to focus on like having a family and like doing life things. I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Um, so me and Gabby, then we kind of got more into the jazz thing. And so that's sort of like, so that's the first chapter coming into the second chapter a little bit about how that worked. <laughs> um, and so then we did a bunch of things together. Like, so we went up to Swing Camp, which is a jazz camp in Sorrento, BC. Oh, yeah. I've always wanted to go there. You should go. It is awesome and it is magical. Um, you have people like Michael Kreber, heavy hitters, Bill Coon, like, um, you know, Jennifer and Renee, right? Jennifer Scott, Renee Worst, right? Like amazing players who are teaching up there. Um yeah, I just, I couldn't recommend, like, re- recommend it more. And it's run by this amazing individual named Rosemary. And Kathy, Kathy Francis is like an OG organizer and leader of uh, so many of these camps. Also like a Georgia straight guitar, uh, music workshop or guitar workshop it used to be called. Amazing camp. And it's such a place of community and of all levels. Um, so highly recommend if you're like, oh, what should I do? Try them out. They're awesome. And they're like such salt of the earth people. So there's my, there's that. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we went there and then we discovered a bass player. um, Jake McIntyre Paul. That's Um, where you met is in Sorrento? 100%. Okay. 
and uh, we did a little trio up there, and then we started doing trio work. And we toured with it, and we were all, and I had never been to the interior, so it was really a fun experience. Like, we toured up, we toured down, we toured to the island, you know, in one car, doing the thing, and it was really great, and I just, like, adore them, those two, so much. Um, and then uh, we made that album, Triodactyl. Mm-hmm. That, that was our trio. Primal Navigation, right? Yeah. Yeah. What um, year was that released? 2018? 2017? Oh, I think it was 2018, 2017, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting one because we have some straight ahead jazz standards with no harmonic, like we have no piano, no guitar. We're utilizing a lot of like really minimalist harmony. Um, but you have like so much heavy work being done by Jake and Gabby with the instruments that they have. Um, and then we had some free stuff like Aftermath is a wild track. Mm-hmm. That there was that, and we recorded that in a shed. It's kind of like a shed recording studio of Jake's friend, who's who happens to be related to Sir Isaac Newton, like the guy who invented gravity. <laughs> like it's like actually really a quite interesting story. Um, and there's like cows outside. It's just yeah, it it was it was lovely. It was great, and um, and then one thing leads leads to another. Gabby, of course, is like an academic superstar, so. She continues on to her master's and she gets into, I call it Hogwarts, but it's not Hogwarts. It's out at like U of T, but it's like this really old, I think it's U of T. It's like this old kind of like castle-y looking thing that only like the best of the best get into. Of course, you know, she gets in because she's that brilliant. Uh And then I think, I don't even know where she is right now, but she's, I feel like, I feel like she's in Costa Rica or somewhere in the wilds doing biology things, saving the planet, doing her thing. So shout out to you, Gabby. Um, and then, uh, Jake came down and was doing cap for a while. And then of course, um, 2020 hit and 2020 was like, oof, it was a lot of things for everybody. COVID. My dad got re-diagnosed with cancer. Everyone had to be separate. There's a lot of things going on. Um, but before then, sorry, jumping ahead a little bit, was me and, and Jake, we did a we did a little duo album, the live album for for Sheila, because Sheila Jordan is infamous for doing bass voice things. And I had seen Sheila in person, thanks to Kay Hammett Vaughn, um, when she had come here years ago. Um, so shout out to Kay Hammett Vaughn. Kay Hammett Vaughn is also my first ever jazz teacher. For, and she's got, first of all, she's like, she's just funky. She's got the most amazing house. It's like super historical. She is funny as as heck. Like her humor, her ability to work a crowd is so amazing and it's authentic. Um, I love her. I will just go over and we'll just hang out and we'll have tea and we'll talk about life. Um, I just like have so much respect for her and so much of my styling is from her. Yeah. So much of my passion for the work and to like hold myself accountable to standards <laughs> like with the standards is with kate um but also like shout out to like um jennifer scott also worked with her and um karen plato oh my god her album um she's got the this tune um insomnia i think is what it's called off of it and it's it's so amazing anyways if you haven't seen it go check it out i've written about it it's beautiful yeah. chef's kiss to all of, all of them um all of them are brilliant anyways so so we put out descartes loved it 
it was a live recording off the floor at a show in Salmon Arm. And then, um, and then 2020 hit and things changed. So I wasn't really doing anything, much of anything too much. I did do, I put out some games and stuff on the social media, but I'm really uncomfortable with social media. And I realized I'm like, this is not really my thing. Um, and, but what's funny is I love going on social media and like being a cheerleader for others. I like liking their stuff. I like sharing their stuff. I will comment on stuff. I will message people. I love it for that. I really hate being like, and this is me. Hate it so much. Really don't like it. Um, so there's that, that is, and it's funny because my day job is marketing. My day job is like digital work. So I think it's kind of funny. I spend so much time on Instagram. And I spend so much time on social media, but I spend none of it on my own accounts. Uh-huh. So that's also a really interesting thing too. Um, and like, I'm really proud of some of the branding that I've built because it's really beautiful and it's like really lovely work um, in regards to like, I feel like it, it embodies what the client was looking for. So I'm proud of that, particularly because I think sometimes how do you build authenticity? I feel like I've always been an authentic person, so I think I bring that to work, my work. But it's funny is that I've been doing so much work for others that my own brand is like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know where I stand. I don't have my branding really. So that's kind of like where you're meeting me right now is like, who are you? I'm like, great question. Great question, Will. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so there's that. I hope that that's answered it. I feel can like I'm you, lecturing. Can you mention more about why you think you, you hate doing that? Or do you feel like that's the only kind of conscious thought you have of it? Do you think there's anything more that you have observed about why you have developed that aversion to doing your own social stuff? Um, great question, Will. Um, I think that there's always things. I think... When you understand that your perception, like how people perceive you is out of your control. And that's a really interesting thing to sit with because what you put out might not be interpreted as you're wanting it to be interpreted. Uh, So there's that. But also like, I'm also very painfully aware of this idea of like, on social media, it's a lot of me, 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 me. And it kind of has to be a bit of like me, 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 me because it's your page, right? But I think sometimes I'm like, yeah, it's easy for the imposter, I guess, to sort of come in and be like, well, is that really you? Do you even know what you're talking about? Like, what do you really know? And like all of these kinds of questions. Um, so I think there's that. And also I'm like, well, I think my biggest question is like, well, what foot am I trying to put forward? Because there's a lot of sides to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of sides to me. So like what what side am I going to put forward? Because as much as I can be like like I love a lot of things. I love people. I love embracing people. I'm very warm, but I'm also extremely fiery. And I can get angry and I can be angry and I can be a dragon lady 100%. Um and I And I like that about me because throughout my history of being a tiny woman in this world that is not very kind to tiny women is that my feistiness and my fierceness is what is what has protected me. Um, 
and like the ability to talk back you know when someone says oh well you're you know women are this or like oh well you're just this because you're a woman or like you're not whatever being able to like stand up and be like actually that's not true or actually this isn't what this is is nerve-wracking but it's also quite powerful but people don't like you when you do it and i i would say you know like for me i was approached um a few years ago like you know about about uh basically what became the women in jazz association um there's a lot of people who behind the scenes were really wanting something because they felt that there's just a lot of a lot of gendered kind of violence or harassment happening and there wasn't a lot of respect and people weren't sure how to go about this and there's a lot of conversations around well maybe lawsuits are should be what it should be and there's a lot of people who are afraid of that and um i said well what if what if we created an organization that was basically public facing and it would basically signal to those who are being predatory that there's actually an organization that's now in the scene that is inviting conversation from people who have been affected and where people can go if they're feeling like they're being attacked or they're being harassed or whatever. And that's sending a signal that there's eyes, there's eyes on the scene now. So stop doing this kind of behavior. And a lot of people behind closed doors were really excited about it. Um, but there is very few people who felt comfortable to be attached to it publicly. And so a lot of people were like, oh, Jessica, like, that's Jessica's thing. The Women in Jazz Association is Jessica's thing. The Sister Jazz blog is Jessica's thing. Um, but it, it, I would say I was a co-founder, but it wasn't just me. There was a lot of more people who were involved in it. Um, but it's hard to be the face of that because it's change and change is uncomfortable. And a lot of people were mad about it. It's like, well, why do women need this? Oh, here we are. Women are complaining. Oh, here we are. Women are bashing men again when they just can't show up because they're not tough enough to show up or whatever these narratives are that are really damaging. And so I got a lot of conversation. I didn't get gigs for a while. And there's a lot of people today who like, they're like, oh yeah, like of course I'm into like girls jazz day and all these things. Like, like there's certain men who I know behind closed doors said no to me who I know, like, I have the screenshots, I, I have the evidence, I have the receipts of men who were like, I'm not going to meet to talk about women in jazz because it's not a thing. Right? And so, like, it's quite interesting because now they're, 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 they're like, oh, of course, of course I'm about that. I'm like, well, you're about it because now you have no choice but to be. But if, if you're, you're a few years before, you were like, no, and you were digging your heels in and you made sure it was impossible for me to you were not going to help me and so i find that really interesting too and again like if i was here to pitchfork men like i've got the names i've got the receipts and i've got the evidence i would ha happily do so but that's not really what i'm here to do so it's been an interesting journey that way as well and so for me i've spent so much of my time kind of like people have come up to me women and men being like why are you doing this why why do we need like what's the women in jazz thing like what, are you just here to like make men's lives worse and you're like no that's not what it's not what we're here for and in fact even like the name of the thing the women in jazz association wasn't even my idea we voted on it 
and it was between Sister Jazz Association because I felt that the Sister Jazz Association was a little bit more flexible in regards to identity. Um, but there's a lot of people who are like, well, no, we really want women in the name because like that's a big part of like this identity that's not existent or being represented. And so it was when we went with that. And so being the chair of the board and things like this have been interesting too. And one of the reasons why it's, you know, on hiatus and it has been on hiatus for a long time is because we couldn't resolve within ourselves our own concern about the fact that most of the board was white. We had a really hard time with that because we were like, you know, here we are, we're supposed to be representing women in the scene, but the majority of us are white which means that no matter what, even if we are trying to be aware of like intersectionality, we're still having blind spots. And um, ultimately and inevitably, we kind of were like, we need to take a pause on this until we can kind of figure out how we want to do our processes in which we feel more inclusive. Because another thing too was like LGBTQ, LGBTQ um, identity was really left out of it too. And like, how do you remedy that? Um, and so there's a lot of questions that came up and, you know, we put on a lot of different events. We did micro, uh, we did micro scholarship grants. We've done like swing dances. We did like educational things. We did workshops with artists. We've done blogs. All these things were designed to try to give women more opportunity to have authority in the, in the scene and also get paid for things and also get represented in things so that they would have things to submit to festivals that they'd actually had blogs written or had articles about them because that's a whole thing when you're submitting to things as if anyone even known knows of you or whatever um but that work like I really am happy with it but it kind of got to a place where it's just like the there was just too many questions that weren't resolved so how does the Sister Jazz Orchestra fit into this story of the Women in Jazz Association of BC and the Sister Jazz blog? Because the SJO is is not on hiatus. They're performing very shortly here, yeah. right? The Sister Jazz Orchestra is kind of like, I have like, ooh. I get very emotional about it because I think it's awesome. Um, and it came out... So Women Jazz uh, Association had an event basically called How to Make an Album. And we had a few panelists. One of them was Dee. Um, um, but... Dee Daniels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we had it at Long McQuaid. I have some good friends at Long McQuaid. And so we were able to get the space for free, which is awesome. Um, shout out to Michael. <laughs> um, and then uh, basically... After that event, Christian came up to me and she said, I have an idea. She's like, it's a big, crazy, audacious idea. Christian Morrison, the current director of the Sister Jazz Orchestra. Yeah. And I said, I'd love to hear it. I love it. So we met for coffee. And uh, we did that. And uh, <laughs> and off we went. But it was a lot of Christian. Like, she's really been such a champion for it. I'm just kind of like that person on the side that's like, yeah, you got this. Go, <laughs> go, run, run with it. Um, but, you know, and I'm, yeah, and now it's a thing. And I, I'm really proud of it because I think one thing that people, I think, don't realize is the reason why having an all, like a, a, 
a big band that's just made up of all women is you actually get to see the the diversity that exists within the identity of womanhood. When you have one woman in a band, you're like, oh, that's a woman. And like, that's the monolith. And she represents all of the women everywhere. When you have like 25 women in a room together, you see the differences. You see the personalities. Like even down to like what they wear, what they're into. What do they do for fun? How they go about doing their thing? How do they see themselves on, as an artist? What their home life is like? How their personal life is? What kinds of jokes do they like to make? All of that is so different. And within that representation, it's like, oh, I can be, I can be myself in this space as well. And I think that's sort of like one of the things that it makes it so magical. But also the vibe of that band, like... That vibe of that band is so much fun, too. There's just, like, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek. There's a lot of humor. But also, there's just, like, so much heart. Because a lot of these um, women have come from spaces where they've, they've all had different experiences um, in regards to their own journey. But they also have some things that are, like, oh, across the board. Whether you're tall or short or, like, this style or that style or this or that. These are things or challenges that everyone seems to have experienced the same. And, uh, yeah. And also just, like, there's some monster players in that band. Holy. I am, like, I have such a big crush, like, such a big talent crush on Karen Graves and Ingrid Stead. Both are very different soloists, but ooh-wee. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Holy. Um, and also just, like, you know, when Jody comes in, I mean, Jody's so busy so we don't get to have her that much but when jody's in there uh it's like chicken noodle soup man like jody's magic like that um and like yeah i just i'm really i'm like proud for it because i know that if i was a kid and i saw that i'd be like oh i could do this right like i think it's important to see but it's also really important to see because then it's like like we were playing at a festival the other time and I was, I was looking and what's really exciting for me is actually seeing the boys being like, oh, oh, they're really good. It's like, oh, maybe you can look up to, maybe that's someone you can look up to. Maybe you can look up to someone that's not a man. You can look up to someone who's a woman who's really good at your instrument and that's okay. And that's totally, totally great. You know, because I think that that's a whole thing too is like education happens at all levels but when these kids see that, like, actually anybody can be good at this instrument and you don't have to just, like, you know, you don't have to just pick a male role model. You can pick a role model that works for you, who's about what you want to be about. doesn't have to be a man, could be a woman, could be, you know, doesn't matter. Anyways, that's my little piece about that. But yeah, yeah. Sister Jazz Orchestra. <laughs> I heard the band once live ever. It was in 2022. Bonnie Northgrave sang music of Chelsea McBride my old friend from here before she moved to toronto was featured there's another show with audrey ochoa joining on trombone around the time she released an album there was a previous show at the the virtual festival of canadian jazz that happened during the the peak of covid Mm -hmm. and then there's this concert that's coming up on march 8th so what's your role in this event that's coming up right now honestly my role i mean 
I don't, to be honest, I don't really feel like I do that much. I do create some posters and promotion. Um, I mean, I'm talking about it now, so I guess that's promotion there. Yes. Um, honestly, sometimes it's a very humble thing. Like, I will bring snacks. I will bring snacks to rehearsal. <laughs> I will, <laughs> you know, one time Bonnie left her microphone um, at rehearsal and she had a gig at Gastown and we were out somewhere in Burnaby. So I drove her microphone all the way to to what was it what's it called gilton co like sometimes it's really small things it's like bringing sheet music um helping christian just like navigate some things like oh okay we're gonna move to this room okay i'll help move things to this room get the chairs set up whatever it is um taking footage photos filming like it's really quite small i i don't think i really do that much um, I think it's just like me being a cheerleader on the side, being like, go, go, go. I think that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to a couple of things. One of them is Primal Navigation by Triodactyl. I, I want to I wanna go back there. There's three tracks, right? So there's there's the title track, and then there's Yardbird Suite, and then there's a third track. That's that's right. It's like an EP. Well, that, that I think there's more songs than that, but those are the only ones that... Um, uh let me just take a little look here because we did we had a full album with that with triodactyl we had more than uh than three but i think you're only able to see three let me just take a little look one second here we were very scared about um rights rights and royalties i think (laughs) makes sense (laughs) so we were like um you know what let's just um let's just see here let me go to band camp for a second because i it's been a while i think oh it's true we only have that's right we only have the ep here we didn't we did more tracks than that there, and are they available on cd then yeah they yeah. are they are i forgot about that that's hidden Ooh, sneaky us but yeah, so we did that. Primal Navigation, Yardbird, and Aftermath. So Primal Navigation and Aftermath are um, improvised. Uh-huh. Fully improvised. No structure. Yeah. And then Yardbird is, of course, Bebop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as one does for their EP. Are there other kind of percussion things going on as well, in addition to just like voice, fiddle, and bass? Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Um, nice. I told you we were in a shed. So right. I found all kinds of things. For Primal Navigation, it's a jar of water that you're hearing off the top. That kind of stuff. Um, there was... Um, I was tapping something on metal at one point. Oh, there's a, there was a circular saw that um, you hear. Oh, but you don't even hear it in this because it's not... I think you only hear it in Stella. Yeah, so you could, if you bought the album, there's many more tracks. Online, there's only these things. Uh, there's only a small amount of albums that we made. So it's quite little, very niche thing. But um, yeah, so yeah, those random percussive instruments are basically me. It might be, at one point, it might have been Gabby. might have been the, the stand. It was, it was quite unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> So. Yeah, it makes sense that you made the CDs because you traveled and performed in a bunch of different places. And so you would want to have them for that. Yeah. And then I, I designed the album cover. Uh-huh. I did. So all the graphic design for any of the albums that I've ever done is 
than me. <laughs> yeah. So tour in 2018 for that, released around that time. Where does that hit you? Are you still at SFU? Are you done at that point? SFU. When you were doing that tour, you were there. I think I was at SFU or I just finished at SFU. Yeah. yeah. I was basically, because I, I did full, actually over, over full course loads every term until I finished. Because I was like, I was like, I want to get this done fast. <laughs> Yeah. So I I did. <laughs> um Well done. Thank you. It was a it was an interesting one. Um but uh yeah, so I think so. There's something else that I heard recently that you would have recorded around that time, but it didn't get released until the past handful of months, which is the the Bronson Ferdinand project. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a crazy project. I I haven't even heard it okay <laughs> like you have that now that it's out yeah the final version of it yeah yeah i i haven't i haven't yeah so now i actually can sit and listen to it um and i was actually very ill that day that we've recorded mm-hmm. i'd have to go back to try and identify it because you're one of four vocalists um uh, on there to identify where your voice sits in those arrangements but yeah it was an interesting project that that uh when i heard about it i was i was excited as because i did that too i I released my first album several years after I recorded it as well, and so I always enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah, well, what's and what's there? Well, and the thing too that was interesting is um, there's a few t- tracks on the Bronson where I'm a solo solo singer, and his whole thing was he wanted me. He had kind of talked about you know tragically hip, the singer for that. He's such a great singer, but the we were talking about the difference between a vocalist and a singer because the vocalist is very technically prowess whereas a singer kind of has this inherent storyteller and like rawness about their technique but is just as like soul fulfilling right if not more so and how he wanted me to lean more towards like the more like imperfection aspects and more rawness which for me as a vocalist was kind of like a new thing i was like oh what you don't want a really polished tone okay let's let's oh i you want me to be artistic with it that's wild um so that was an interesting one but that was a fun one to to do but i remember coming in that day i was a little bit late and i was horrifically ill um i was having shakes basically and it turned out that i had um badly an infection of like rocky mountain spotted fever which is this like you don't get you get from mosquitoes out in the in like the interior it's basically it's similar to Lyme's disease it's not as intense it's not as bad but um and I was able to like get some medicine and, and feel better but it took a while to figure out what it was mm-hmm. um but yeah so interesting interesting but there's some yeah who are the vocalists on that so off the top of my head I believe it was Korea and you and Tawny and Sarah Kim I think you're right yeah yeah look at you boom you're like ah uh, here we go <laughs> I, I i published a review about it so i did write them out in the personnel section so i was oh, just trying amazing. to picture that in my head oh then you know yeah i i haven't even listened to it i feel bad i didn't even know it was out i've kind of been a bit of a hermit i've been under a rock a little bit like you have brought me out <laughs> but otherwise i've been a bit of a hermit yeah well, i've brought myself out so i feel you i know what you mean yeah <laughs> yeah there's a, a couple other projects that i have checked out from you that haven't come up yet um one of them is you're recording with darren radke and michael craver who you mentioned it's called caught in a memory yeah. right and this that's shortly after this time period that we're talking about you like maybe around the time you finished it it's like 2019 you would have gone on to record that right yeah it was a one it was four hours 
It's a four-hour recording session nice. for a gift certificate <laughs> with a sound tech that was kind of new. And okay. It was off the floor and it was on analog. Very cool. It was on tape. Um, so that's an interesting one. We did not have a rehearsal. Very cool. Um, a lot of those takes are like the first take and the only time we got to do the take. Um, but that's actually, I've got a whole, I've actually remastered it with Bill Buckingham from Buckingham Palaces. And that's actually one of the things that might be coming out this year. Okay. Um, which is kind of exciting. But uh, yeah, that was amazing. Working with Darren and Michael. I mean, God, they're good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Like, yeah, I just love those two so much. I've always had such an admiration for Darren as a teacher. And um, he really worked with me on some of the arrangements. And and then, of course, I met Michael at swing camp. And he's he's so damn good. And he's just so damn kind. Uh-huh. And you're just like, that's it. That's it right there. And he's got, he's also got the heaviest hands I ever, he would, if he claps, like you'll, <laughs> you'll hear it in Newfoundland, you know, like he's just got a heavy hand. Um, but he's also like lovely on the dance floor for swing dance. He's so nice. So kind. <laughs> and that's why swing camp's lovely. Um, I also met Tom Keenly side who I also oh, adore yes. and I think is an absolute, um, dream boat of a band leader. He let me play bassoon in the freaking band for the swing <laughs> camp. I was like, really he's like yeah come on out play your bassoon and so i'm just like this is great um so again i have like such big love for all of those people at swing camp shout out to swing camp you're so amazing amazing yeah so you have the new masters for that in the can now and you're just it's just up to releasing or that that project is going to be completed in the near future and then you're going to decide what to do with it you said that's still there's something there that's upcoming yeah, it is. so we've remastered all the old tracks and then I'm just thinking of doing... So the whole album, Cotton Memory, is all songs I've sung at people's funerals. Okay. That's the set list. Um, so the thought was to add one more, which would be my dad. <sighs> I, I, I think I know what, what track it is. I just don't know if I have it in me to do it. And I have an idea of a release, release date, but I'm not sure if everything will pull together in time for it. But basically, I want to do one more track with Michael and Darren to add to as like a celebration of the remastering and as an acknowledgement of the change. I just don't know if I have it in me to do it yet. Yeah. Well, nobody else is going to put any pressure on you for that. <laughs> so at the, at the right time, you can make it happen. So that's good. Yeah. So it's just like, it's just like that. Ugh, still so fresh. But so there's that project. And then I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of been been spinning in my mind. So I've got one thing that I'm doing with Dave Coles, who's a composer in Vancouver, moved to the island. There's one song that I'm working on lyrics for him. And I want it to be in both English and French. Um, but I'm really having a hard time having the French rhythmically fit. So we're working on that. And also I need to pronounce it properly. So that's another thing too. But that's kind of in the works. And that's been about a year now, unfortunately. It's very hard to do art on the side, Will. Uh -huh. I'll tell you that right now. I, I feel that. <laughs> I feel that myself for sure. Because um, time flies. Um, and then I've also got another thing going on. So I, I did a Christmas. I actually had a, I was supposed to have two tracks come out this Christmas. One of them to celebrate um, the birth of my first nephew. Oh, nice. Um, but at the time, there's a lot of um, kind of 
action online about being like being quiet for Palestine. And so I really didn't feel it in me to like put out these new tracks at the time. I was like, mm, man, like let me make some space. And so I really haven't been doing much either for the uh, sort of just to try to like create some space for that too, because it's, it's hard and it, it's very frustrating. Like being someone who studied peace building and human security, I've been writing essays about the Congo and like we've been talking about these conflicts for years, um, like within my own academia and study. And so for them to be really here right now and still be like, we're just dealing with so much conflict right now that could have been preventable if, you know, there was more peace building work done earlier and so it's hard to kind of be here and sitting and watching all of this conflict and watching people kill each other over their opinions on 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 these conflicts that ultimately had so much opportunity for resolve before it got to this place and so it's it's really tough then too and it it it, it does affect it's like what am i who am i to make art right now who am i to make art right now when there's just like so much suffering and it's with a, but but art heals. It's like that's true. And it was like so there's all this back and forth of like what do I do? Do I do it for this? Do I do it for that? Do I do I just give space? What's the right thing to do? Because again, like all this social media stuff is like it can make the difference, but it's also like ultimately the people who can make the change that we're seeking belongs to a very small group of individuals who have a lot of power. And we can put pressure on them, but at the end of the day that's what it is, it's pressure. But the decision is ultimately out of our hands. And that's the thing that I find extremely difficult to sit with. That's heavy. That's heavy, too. And, like, there's a part of me, like, there's one professor who's doing work in Ukraine. And I really want to go and I want to do field research. And I want to pursue that part of my career. Um, they were actually recently just bombed that part of Ukraine again. And um, it's also like, well, and who, what am I going to do when I'm there? Just eat up their resources? I don't have their, I don't know the language. What am I going to do there? How am I going to be helpful? Because there's a lot of questions around this. Like a big thing about peace building and human security. Human security isn't, isn't about weaponry or defenses or how tall is your castle. Human security is, do people who are living in these situations have food, water, shelter, warmth, clean uh, the ability to clean things? Do they have these things? Yes or no? And if not, what's, what's the best way to get from point A to point B to fulfill that need? So it's just like, ugh, it's, it's a lot. Um, anywho, so I, and I was approached by one individual who I really respect, who was like, can you write a song for Palestine? And I was like, that's a great question. And a big one for me is like, me being a white woman who's so far removed, am I the one to write a song for it? And what kind of song would that look like? And what would be the most powerful? And how would I, how would I create a story? And it's like, or would I just become this white woman who's harnessed someone's suffering to then shoot myself to fame? Because I don't want to do that. And so there's some really interesting questions for me, like, in regards to, like, how do I show up and support without, like, taking... So I'm sitting with some of these questions right now in my own artistry. This relates very much to what you would have been studying at Royal Roads, right? When you were doing your master's, as you're saying, in human security and peacebuilding studies on, on Vancouver Island outside of Victoria, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When did you enroll there? 
So I started in Janu- January 2020. Okay. And my dad passed in 2021, halfway through the program. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to take a break. And I knew that if I took a break, I wouldn't have finished. Uh-huh. So I just powered through and I finished it. But because it happened during COVID, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for like field research. I've always wanted to conduct research. I've always wanted to be in the field. And I'm really interested in some of the, uh, in some of the really big problems that are facing, facing the world. You know, like, I, I don't believe in the impossible problem. I don't believe that the conflicts and the violences that we're seeing are not, are, are not able to be solved. But I do think that oftentimes in these conflicts, we have to identify the knots within them. Because... You know, if you ha- so if, if you've ever had a piece of jewelry that's very small and fine, get a knot in it. It's extremely difficult to unknot it without breaking it. And so I think oftentimes I kind of think about conflict like this, where people think, oh, the quick solution is often one of the more violent ones. We'll just drop a bomb. We'll just whatever. We'll just wipe them all out, and then we'll never have to worry about the conflict again whatever it is, whatever it is. And so these questions that people come up with and these solutions that people come up with are not sustainable and they're not peaceful. But they're often coming from a place where they think, well, it will solve the problem. But as we know, violence begets violence. So it doesn't solve the problem. But the real work, the unknotting of these conflicts is something that within our history of humanity in the last thousands of years, we don't really know. We haven't really seen it. And so that work is sort of where we're needing to move to. But it's really uncomfortable. And it's also, like I said, because it's new, there's not these like tried and true methods of actually really creating like well-known successful processes yet. We do know some things. We know that oftentimes in the room, there's a lot of spaces in the room where women aren't allowed. They're not allowed in the war room. They're not allowed in the peace talks rooms. They're not allowed in these spaces. However, when women are in these spaces, we find that the armistice or the peace talks are more successful through research. Um, And so I also find that quite interesting um, because here I am in peace building and human security and we're still running into gendered violence and we're still running into the assumptions on gender that are actually having really negative effects on really important, really important problems. So studying, studying that, being in 2020, being in COVID, studying human security and peace building where you're studying some of the hardest problems in the world and then not being able to do field research not being able to do that work having a dad who is struggling to to survive basically we're all struggling to survive and then having him pass it's like it's a lot it's a lot and that's not even anything without with anything else in my personal life let alone like romance or like love or loss in that regard um and so it 
it really changed me. Like I used to be much more verbal and much more violent, much more intense about what I think is right and what I think is wrong. Um, and for me, ever since that loss, it it changed me so much because I, I had so much anger. I was so angry, and I still am. Um, but there's also just like the grief, and the grief is very different. And the exhaustion is like, you, you can't be, like with grief, grief exhausts you because you have to keep your mask on even when you are breaking apart. And so anger is very hard to keep up because anger is a lot of fire. Anger is a lot of, you know, you need a lot of fodder for that. You need a lot of energy for that. And when you don't have it because you're grieving, the world becomes so different and very nuanced because things just keep on going with or without you. Um, and so it's it's kind of changed a lot about me as a person, but also like as an artist, like there's so much that I want to say that I haven't said, but it's also exhausting to say. And so there's been, I feel like I've done a lot less. I feel like in the last few years, I've done so much less than I think I would have if, if things were different. Um, and it kind of moves me towards, like, who am I as a person? What do I want? What do I value? Am I a good person? Am I whatever? And because oftentimes, like, as girls, you're raised to be nice. Oh, I'm a nice girl. I always do what I'm told, and I always do these things. But do I want to be nice, or do I want to be good? Do I want to be a good person? And am I on the right side of conflict here? What's the right side? Who's right? And who's wrong? And why? And all these questions come up over and over and over again. And it's important to ask these questions. Um, but it, you really get lost sometimes. You get lost in, like, you know, I feel like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I can't do more. Oh, I'm not doing enough. I can't do more. And, like, all of those kinds of things become conflicting. Am I keeping up? No, I'm not. What do you do with that? What do you, what do, you do like that, with that? I think it's, again, this is, like, just, like, being very authentic and <laughs> just being really honest. But I think it's it's a lot of things to think about. Now, that being said, I mean, even in the years since you enrolled there and, and on your way to completion, and since then, you've still done a lot of traveling. You've, you've gone to other places to do theater shows. You've been involved in theater. You've been involved in some short films. You have been doing all of that recently. Yeah. Yeah, some, some, of, the, some of those things. I mean, like, I think this year is kind of like the year where I've I've kind of, like, slowed i think i was saying yes to a lot of things and like i liked all these projects and i want to be working like i i feel like this year was the first year where i realized i was a hard worker i didn't think i was a hard worker for a long time this is the first year where i'm like oh i am a hard worker um yeah and like i went to rada but i kind of feel like that's for myself you know i kind of feel like that was a selfish thing like i went to the royal academy of dramatic arts um i got auditioned for their musical theater summer intensive which only lets in 16 people a year and i got in but see i didn't think i was going to get into that so i signed up for a more flexible program for them at rada which was more of like a summer acting intensive but i got in so it was a pleasant surprise but it was also a moment where it's like um you, th you realize, like, you know, how much do you doubt yourself as an artist? I think it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of people, you kind of walk this line of, like, being completely delusional in how great you are. 
And some people live in that realm. And some people are like, I'm nobody. And some people live in that realm. And it's like, where is it? Where is it healthy? And, and it's this little tightrope walk of like being like, no, I'm good. And I still got more to learn and that's okay. But I'm still worthy of being here. And it's like an interesting little thing. So the Rada, that was interesting. I adored Rada. The people there were amazing. They kicked my butt. Like so hard, but like in the most loving way. I learned new things. I dove into the process. I fell in love with all of it. Um, and I would go back to Rada again in a heartbeat. Um, but that was also like a diversion. Like for me, it's like, okay, off I go. I'm going to try something completely different and completely new. And I'm like, oh, was that an escape? Like, am I, am I actually working with intention towards things? Or am I just kind of doing a bunch of things to be busy? And so that was one thing that I've kind of caught myself in this year is, am I being intentional? And am I showing up as myself? Or am I showing up to please someone else? So. What do you think? I think now I feel quite unhinged. I feel like now it's a very raw, I feel like I've come out of this like, you know, like when lobsters or bugs, they like, they, you know, they shed their shell (laughs) and then they're kind of like goopy. They're kind of a little bit fresh and really, really vulnerable. I feel like I'm kind of sitting in this space right now. It's interesting. It's interesting. I think as an artist, I feel like I'm almost there. I feel like I'm almost an artist. Because I don't feel like I've been an artist for a long time. I feel like I'm not really... I feel like I will bloom soon. But I'm not there yet. (laughs) But yet you kind of feel like you've been there before. A little bit. Like, I think that there have been glimmers of like... I've always been authentic. But I don't think my art has truly delivered on itself. On who I think I am. And I think that, and maybe I never will feel that way. Like one thing I love about Sonny Rollins is that he's just like, he's always pursued and pursued and pursued. And yet all of that journey is him. So I'm uh-huh. like, oh, maybe here I am. And maybe, I, I don't know. I'm not, no, I'm not saying I'm Sonny because Lord, no, I am not. But one of the things I adore about that artist is that you see a struggle and he's never afraid to show you it. Uh-huh. Like, so I'm, that's one of the things I deeply admire. Yeah. So another project that you did, this would have been around the time you were starting out at Royal Roads, is called Closest Living Relative. And this is where <laughs> you you continue to do improvised stuff in addition to, you know, you have background in dance and theater and in the the mainstream jazz tradition. But here you're playing with two musicians who as I know from recently talking to them, they currently do a thing called improv karaoke and they I play in the improvising them. scene, uh, Mike WT Allen and Spencer Schoening. So yeah. what, what do you, what is still with you of this project? What do you want to say about that one? I mean, one thing that's really cool about Mike is he's like, yeah, we're going to do it. Yes. You know, Mike's <laughs> like, a, that's really weird. Here we go. <laughs> Absolutely. But Spencer is one of those uh, endearing individuals who is quietly like, fine-tuning the chaos you know like he uh, loves it and he lives in it but it's not just like throw anything at the wall and see what sticks he's got a paintbrush there you know he's like oh i want a little bit there i want a little something there and whatever so working with those two was a lot of fun um and it was all improvised 
What and about the lyrics? Lyrics all improvised. Or improvised. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think there's maybe one that was like parts of a poem or some rough poems. I'm, I, I write quite a lot of, of poems um, that I kind of pulled from. But a lot of it's just improvised. And uh, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, it just, it turned out. One of the things I love about improvised music is when you're working together. I think sometimes in improvised music, there's a lot, if there's ego involved, it's very hard to work in it. Because people are like, oh, I'm going to do this because it's going to look cool. And it's like, but you need to be with me right now. We're we're in this together. So I one thing with Mike and Spencer is there was not really any ego in that room. It was just a lot of play. And mm-hmm. I, think you can, I think you can hear it because we're really moving towards one another. Um, It was fun. And I got to play, and I got to play bassoon. So yes. <laughs> I was really pumped on that. Honestly, I loved, yeah. I loved it. I'm Did not, you also play piano? I played piano yeah. a little bit at some yeah. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the better piano playing was done by the other two, but okay. yes. <laughs> okay. If there's any smooth lines of runs and stuff, that was not me. That was probably them. But okay. otherwise, yes. Um, so yeah, closest living relative. I would do things with them again. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, no. But that was actually a little bit earlier. We we put it we put it out then, but we had we had it kicking around for a few years actually. Yeah. Just like how Descartes for Sheila, it came out in 2021, but it sounds like you had recorded it previously and then you post-produced it later and then you put it out later. 100%. Yeah. Uh, that's a big thing with me is like I get something done, but then the the like admin work prolongs getting it out. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it gets done and then it just sits somewhere. It sits somewhere for years. Yeah. I definitely have done that too because my first album had that kind of gestation period of like four years and then my second album about three so yeah i feel that (laughs) yeah no exactly yeah i love your version of i'm on fire from descartes for sheila thank you i yeah i bruce springsteen ladies and gentlemen but um apparently it's actually about a car that song is about a car (laughs) originally but for me it was not about that (laughs) yeah um but uh yeah i love that one i love that tune yeah there's there's a lot of great arrangements on that on that project that was like the first that project was like the first one of yours that i actually really checked out i would say yeah yeah yeah, yeah. around the time that it came out yeah well and like jake is doing such heavy lifting because it's just bass Mm -hmm. it's just electric bass so he's done a lot of interesting things with the arrangements there and you can really hear it um but also uh yeah, the two of us, uh, you know, we seem to have a natural affinity to kind of know where we're going, and so that really helped too. So a lot of the making of the music was a lot was us just playing around, and then being like, no, that that's nice, like the better than anything, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also the MJ, hey pretty baby, right? That it started as a better than sailing at midnight and i was hearing a bass line and i'm like this bass line sounds like this so i started singing it and he's like oh that's cool i was like oh yeah that is cool and then that's kind of how that turned out yeah the mashup yeah are you going to continue playing together in the near future i i don't know what he's up to like, i saw him like last weekend oh, at jazz of the bolt oh amazing <laughs> i haven't seen him in like years I haven't seen him since 2020 because he went back up. Yeah. And then I knew he was working on a tiny house. Um, and then I never heard from him again. 
and i knew he always wanted to be a mountain man so i'm like maybe he's there was he playing no okay neither just, was i yeah just there to listen okay well, that's good to know that he was in town yeah i honestly then i'll have to shoot him a message or something but um yeah i do know he's a bit of like he likes his alone time he likes to be out in the woods by himself so if he's gone <laughs> i'm like he's probably out there in his tiny house that he made by himself doing outdoor things you know yeah okay now now we're getting into random time where there's some other things that i haven't managed to catch yet that i want to catch you before we get out of here um one of them so i i was absent kind of from this community for several years while i was playing folk music and touring and i had a similar kind of year it sounds like to what you did when you were doing that with triodactyl and i wasn't participating a lot in this community until i came back and started doing rhythm changes and there's there are many places that i didn't ever get to see or get to go to that popped up during that time and then were gone by the time i came back and i wanted to ask you about one of them because i'm pretty sure you've played there you've been there a couple times yeah. what was the maplewood concert series at the maple it was this upstairs venue okay this is a funny one in great in my like so there's this kind of like little rundownish bar pub type of thing that's near the dump in north van and it used to be kind of like a nightclub for a little bit and then people you know lose interest in it and it kind of festers a bit and uh who was it i think it was atley who booked it i think so yeah 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 and um it was basically the upstairs had a kind of quaint little venue um and so it was a series that was put on um atley organized it and um it was kind of a cool venue i feel like it I feel like um, it was kind of out like it was like if you were on a bus, it would take some time to walk there because it wasn't really on the path of a bus. So for a lot of students, it might have been hard to get to. I thought it was kind of a, I thought it was kind of cool. Like for me, I love me an interesting venue. Um, but there's definitely like, you know, there's pub music downstairs and like it's a, you know, it's kind of humble because it's, it's not, you know, necessarily dedicated to, to jazz, but those nights that Atlee put on were really wonderful. And he had a lot of variety within that venue too. And I played there. I I really liked it. Um it was just nice and quiet. Had some skylights. It's just like it was cute. I liked it. I think it could have I mean, the thing is I, I see the potential in anything, but I think that one of the biggest struggles with our jazz scene is how do we get people who aren't in the jazz scene to watch the jazz scene? I think is one of the biggest questions that are face that's facing us. So this could be a dumb question, or I could be missing the point. But if we tried to break that down about what it actually looks like when you make progress there, it's like bringing people out to shows for the first time, where like they haven't been to a show that you would consider to be part of this community before. Is that are those the people who are not part of the scene? Because like if they start coming to the shows, then obviously they are a part of the scene right but it's about getting people there for the first time i would say yeah so for me when i say people who are in the scene it's like a lot of times at shows of jazz shows there's jazz musicians 
as there should be. And that's awesome. But I think one of the things that we're missing is kind of like, like you said, like some people who are coming out for the first time or some people who might be coming out for like the second or third time. We're really kind of looking for that consistency over time because some people might be in by chance. So maybe yeah, with Frankie's, maybe it was an accidental walk-in. You know, a guy booked a, the place for the date. Oh, happens to be jazz tonight. Okay, cool. You know, like there's sometimes those moments. But I think for people who are outside the scene, I also talk about people who like, who aren't jazz musicians. People who enjoy jazz but aren't jazz musicians, I think would be would be something. Because the one thing about jazz musicians, um, watching other jazz musicians, is when they all have gigs, then no one can watch each other, which happens sometimes. And I've seen, I've seen, you know, I've been to a show where there's like five people in the audience to a really amazing show just because a lot of those jazz musicians are also working other other places. And I'm like, man, this is a really good show. Like, where are the people who are who are jazz listeners and so i think maybe that's the question it's because of course like they do become part of the scene obviously i would agree with you right over time they become part of the community because for me i think that that's one thing is like because growing our scene would be would be having those those fans who enjoy the music and i know that there's fans out there of jazz so it's just like how do we connect them you know but that's one of the things why like i find what you're doing is so important <laughs> like if i think about it like Bless Apollo and bless Vince because they're one of the only people who have photo evidence of us. Totally. Um, but then like their work with your work, like because you do so much blog, like you are like February 6th, February 9th, you're putting posts out, posts out, posts. And I'm like, amazing. It's amazing, Will. Like you're going and it's fast and you're putting it all out. And I'm really like so impressed with all the work. Um, and you're you're creating like a place where people can find us mm-hmm well thank so, you that's just a shout out to you will because like <laughs> like it's a lot of freaking work and i'm just like i want to like hats off hats off yeah i mean it works because of it's the right size community like you can't really do it even in the broader indie music community because it's too big or it's too spread out you can't keep track of everything but this this community is the right size where you can you can keep track of literally everything pretty much because it's the right size. It's also not too small. Like there's there's enough going on that that's never the problem. Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah, it, the problem is that there's size. things going on. Yeah, 100%. The problem is just just like, yeah, I think that you've kind of hit the nail right on the head. Yes, there's certainly still that that question though of are you doing the right things to uh, get, the, get the most people coming out and to keep reaching new people? That's that ha- you're, that hasn't been solved at all you're right that's still the that's still the thing that the more progress you make on that then it makes everything else better so there's a lot i think about that all the time there's a lot to do there but i also think so for me this year what i found has changed for me um so i actually had in december i had the lovely opportunity to sing at the deep cove coffee house with my good friend um john lyon who's uh-huh. got amazing stories and is an amazing songwriter but he was he was sick that night and so um miles black you know the one (laughs) the only the ultimate miles black was like oh i'll i'll sit in so it was basically me and him and this lovely flautist um and uh the first part part of me was like oh my god what am i gonna do because you're like, oh, shoot, this is not what the plans were, right? Um, and as a vocalist who doesn't have perfect pitch, working with a new 
person in harmony is always kind of like a question because you're like, well, how how do they go about doing things? Because learning somebody is really important as a vocalist. Some people voice very differently than others. And sometimes some people's voicings are, you know, um, in a styling that might find be more confusing for you as a vocalist or less confusing, depending on. Um, of course, like Miles Black, like I feel like if I tripped physically on stage, Miles would catch me with his hooks. <laughs> like that's just kind of how Miles is. But what I realized was I was, I was like, I could be stressed at this or I could just lean in, surrender, and just enjoy the songs. And that was kind of like the first time where I really did that. And um, man, was it fun. And so I think for me, what I realized too is like, when you're in, when you're trying to do the business side, I think that the business side sometimes takes over your brain. Because you're like, okay, well, I've got this gig out. I've got to get people out. And then you got stressed because when the, when the people who come out, you got to prove that you were good so that they come out again. And then, you know, that the next gig, they'll be there. And then you got to prove that they're you're good again so that they'll come out. And that's not really, that's not really um, conducive to the artistic process. And it also puts a lot of pressure on everyone involved. Because it's like, oh, well, I want to show them that I care, but I can't show up tonight. But, but I really got to show up so that they can know that they know I care. Um, and so that's why it's sometimes hard when there's not a lot of audience is like, there's like this really interesting dynamic of like stress all around. Because people are like, oh, I want, them to, I want them to keep that gig or I want them to do this. But I, I, I'm literally working tonight. And that's a big one for me is like, I work nights. So I see these amazing gigs and I'm like, oh, I can't get there because my day job and I need to eat you know so that's kind of tricky and uh and I've also experienced it too you know people are like oh that, that sounds like an amazing gig but, they, you, but you couldn't come out and it's like oh it's tough but what I I'm realizing what I'm going to try to do is if I have a gig I'm going to really try to just lean into enjoying the moment and being present <laughs> uh-huh. instead of like worrying about numbers or selling things or getting things like trying to get money out of it and then just move from there. Yeah. But I can also afford to do that because I have a day job. Yeah. So that's another thing too, right? So it, it is it is quite tricky, but I'll let you know how I'll let you yeah. know how it fares. Um currently I'm still living under a rock. So I will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> well this this is not necessarily a disagreement with anything you just said, but you the tension between trying to promote your thing and then fulfilling the artist's role in addition to the pro there isn't any other is there isn't any other way around that right though like that's just kind of a reality to be reckoned with as opposed to there isn't a way to do an end run around that really is there no well and especially not in today's times right because like back in the day if you were good you get picked up by whatever you have a manager or whatever like the 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 trajectory was very different where i feel like nowadays you are your own pr you are your media marketer, blah, blah, blah. You are your social media person. You are also the producer. You're also the graphic designer. You're also the stylist. You're also the artist. You're also the tech person. You're also the manager and all of these things. Whereas back in the day, um, it wasn't so much like this. And, and my, like Michael League from Snarky Puppy really talks about this quite a bit. Being a band leader, he's like, look... <laughs> yeah this is a thing so I, I think that that's kind of part of that because like you're saying getting people to come out and like the artist like that's kind of like a natural artist like biome 
is like, yeah. be, how do I be true to myself? Also, how do I attract the people who are going to like it? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a great question. And there's a little bit of magic in there, right? There's like a little bit of like, there's a little bit of like unexplainable that kind of happens, you know? And so I think for me, what I'm realizing is like, I've got to just kind of like surrender to the fact that there's like a little bit of unknown that mixes in and like see what happens versus like trying to control every aspect of how to grow. Yeah. The thing is though, like, yes, you do have to fulfill all those roles if you want to operate at a high level, like snarky puppy or something like that, because those are required in the upkeep of what you're doing. But for somebody like us, like all those things that you listed that are roles that you would have to fill, like none of them are really being foisted upon you, right? Not in the fullest, like you, they're there and you can do any of them to the extent that you think is appropriate, but you decide that extent, right? Mm -hmm. It's not so much all being foisted upon you that you have to do them all at a high level. That's true. I would say. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I think more so it's yourself, right? It's your own pressure. And then that gets into the cycle of like, well, am I doing too much social media? Am I not doing enough social media? And then you get caught in that cycle too. But it is really from the self, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Oh, always giving ourselves a hard time, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a dialogue about these things that everybody reckons with, but I found that you're dealing with them in such an honest way. I thought you were really insightful and i really enjoyed this conversation all the way through so oh, thank you thank for joining you. me today i really enjoyed it thank you will for letting my mind wander and i'll see you next time thank you for tuning in to this episode of the rhythm changes podcast if you enjoyed it make sure you're signed up to the free weekly email at rhythmchanges.ca go there become a member for free today i write to you every tuesday about an artist event or recording in our scene plus this week's events from the gig list this is a new episode that was entirely made by me rhythm changes is a churn off music production it's been fun on the podcast this year can't wait to do more for you and i will catch you in the next one bye